Welcome to the Sleep for Performance podcast. Today I am joined by my good old friend, the one and only Mr. Israel. Well, sorry, the last time you were Mr. I spoke to you, now you're Dr. Israel Halpern. So how are you, Israel? I'm doing great, Ian. Thanks for having me. No problem. You're not professor already, are you? No, not yet. I mean, I'm an assistant professor for whatever it's worth. So, An assistant professor. Maybe What's the difference between... What's the difference between an assistant professor, an associate professor, and a full professor? It's just the, the I suppose it's, it's equivalent to being a senior, I'm sorry, a lecturer, a senior lecturer. And then, I mean, each country has their own ranks and systems in which you progress over the years in the academic ranks. So an assistant professor is usually the, the starting position in most countries. And I think that's equivalent to a uh, senior lecturer in Australia. Okay. No worries. Easy. So Israel, you are joining us today from the country of Israel. So you are Israel squared um, and you are currently in Tel Aviv. Is that correct? Yeah, I'm working. I'm, I live in Tel Aviv and I work at the Tel Aviv city. Now, obviously, with a name like Israel, you must have grown up in a Israeli family or in Israel as well. Is that correct? So where, can you give us a bit of a background on how you grew up and how you got to where you are now? Yeah, actually, I'm... Uh, I was born in the States, to be fair, and we did, I did spend, growing up, I spent at least half of my uh, my years uh, living in the States or some parts of Europe. So that, that's because my dad was uh, was also an academic and we traveled due to his uh, different positions. But I did spend a fair bit of my life growing up here in Israel. And um, yeah, and then I, what was the next part? If I was... And then just like a bit of a bit of background then on sort of how you got to your position today in Tel Aviv, what led you to that position? Right, yeah. So yeah, so I uh, at some point I graduated from um, with a degree in physical education. I knew that I was more interested in the science aspects of things, so I moved to Canada and pursued a master's degree in exercise physiology. That was in uh, Newfoundland at uh, Saint John's. I worked with uh, Professor David Bain. I studied, uh, I started there my research on uh, the effects of feedback and knowledge of exercise endpoint, things of that nature, which I'm sure we'll talk about soon. After which I was fortunate enough to get a scholarship to do my PhD at the Australian uh, Institute of Sports, where I met you. And also there, my, uh, I worked with uh, combat sports over there. I worked, uh, some of my research dealt with uh, boxers and taekwondo athletes, judo, things like that. And I was also a trainer, a coach of some uh, Muay Thai athletes. And my research there also dealt with the effects of different types of feedback on combat sports performance and strength and conditioning. I then moved back to Canada. I did a short postdoc over there, again, with uh, Professor David Bain. And somehow I was able to find a job here in Israel. That was actually not part of the plan, especially because there was just no program in exercise physiology. So I didn't know that I'll be able to get a job here. So I was fortunate enough to actually move. So Israel is now back in Israel. Excellent. All right. So um, Israel, you, in, in conjunction with being an academic, and you kind of touched on there briefly, you have actually experience as a combat sports athlete yourself. Can you give us a bit of an overview about um, what martial arts and what combat sports you practice and your competing record as well? Yeah, so as a growing up, I suppose, but like many others, I started with some traditional uh, Kung Fu, Karate, things of that nature. But uh, I think I was about 13 when I joined 
what was uh, the, the original, I mean, what, what now we would term MMA gym, that was not, not as uh, clearly as evolved because now I'm almost 40. So we're talking more than 25 years ago or so. And it wasn't as uh, developed, but it did include kickboxing, boxing, judo, wrestling, things of that nature. And I was hooked. And I started training locally and competing here in Israel. These are very uh, low-level events, right? But still got me going. I competed in Kyokushin Karate, which is just full contact, uh, essentially kickboxing without gloves and without hitting the head. And some local uh, jiu-jitsu events, Japanese jiu-jitsu. I knew that this is what I was going to do. So I moved to, um, I, I actually spent some time in the Netherlands. I took a few... Um, Traveled there for a few weeks to train and with some uh, higher caliber kickboxers and MMA gyms. But when I was 18, I actually moved to the to the States. I uh, went back and forth with uh, Boss Rutten back then. I emailed him and he uh, was kind enough to get back to me with my emails. He even sent me back, the, back then all of his uh, VHS videos of his uh, <laughs> training. Back then, there was no CDs. Yeah, yeah. So he just sent sent it to me to Israel to, um, and then I was like, well, I have the opportunity to go and train with Boss, so who would say no to that? So I packed my things and moved to California to train and compete. And I did spend time uh, training with Boss and, and his team. That was incredible. And at some point, I think Boss was a bit too busy, and and uh, he suggested I started training with uh, Raw. Back then, it was uh, Real American Wrestling. That was a pretty strong MMA gym that had a lot of uh, high-caliber UFC fighters who I, I trained with. Uh, Frank Trigg, Mac Danzig, uh, Vladimir Masachenko, and Rico Ciparelli, and, and many more, actually. So I, I spent roughly two years there training and competing until I dislocated. In one of the events I competed, I dislocated my shoulder and I had Ooh. to get a, a surgery. And that was uh, a real letdown. I was really disappointed. And after that, I just moved back to Israel. Started coaching myself, opened uh, a gym, and uh, started producing uh, pretty high-level fighters. And then I got the itch again, and my shoulder was getting better. And I said, okay, I want to compete again now. So I said, all right, I'm shutting down the gym, and I'm moving to Thailand, which is what I've done. I, I uh, I moved to Thailand and I spent nearly a year there training, competing uh, full-time at uh, Thai boxing. Competed there, I think, what was it, about eight or nine times over that period. And that was that was great fun. But I did burn myself out. I mean, I, I didn't plan to stay there for, for, the, for, for just under a year. I thought I'd stay there for much longer. But the training, the training, competing, the intensity of it just wore me down and one day I remember just waking up and I said all right I can't do this anymore I was completely burnt out that was like understanding why that happened is always interesting for me but it just happened and one one morning I remember that day I was just like okay I had enough I can't do this anymore the next day I booked a flight back to Israel and after that I couldn't I stopped training for for a good while I just was was, was sick of the sport and uh, I didn't, I stopped training myself, kickboxing and boxing and MMA for a couple of years after that. I just couldn't, couldn't bring myself, but by natural progression was to, um, to, to move into the S&C part of things. Cause I was just a bit fatigued with the stand-up part, with the, I'm sorry, with the martial arts itself. 
So I started gravitated towards working with, with athletes, mostly combat athletes as a strength and conditioning coach. And from that point onward, I moved in with my, uh, with my academic career. And then at some point after a couple of years, I got the itch back and I started training again myself. I didn't compete afterwards, but I was very close to, mm. uh, to, I was training heavily. I was training as if I'm competing, but I never competed again afterwards. And you currently so training? All, I don't know. I fought, I fought maybe 20 times overall professionally, a mixture of uh, kickboxing and, and a number of MMA uh, bouts as well. And are you currently yeah. training now, Israel? I am training, but I'm training like a 40-year-old who's out of shape. So I'm training. I'm tra- <laughs> to be fair, I'm tra- trying to be serious about my training. I, uh, I do kickboxing about twice a week. I spar, we hit the pads, I hit the bag, and then I do resistance training yeah. another two or three times a week. That's where I'm at. Yeah. Don't be, uh, don't be slagging off 40 year olds. I'm older than you. So, you know, I know it's fair. <laughs> once you're not competing, at least for me, it, it is harder to keep motivated. That's, yeah. that's my experience. Yeah. I've, I've actually personally like the last couple of years, uh, cause it's interesting to say about burnout. I, I'm kind of burnt out from running. And since I finished my PhD, I've actually started swimming. I'm getting into long distance swimming. It's a lot more gentler on the body. It's a bit more social. Just find out just, just something, just enjoying a bit more. Definitely gentler on the body than long distance running and doing any sort of jiu-jitsu competitions as well. But um, I've just found, um, I think, more different targets, more like skill development, skill acquisition, problem solving. Particularly in jiu-jitsu, I think you can probably maybe do that more where it's not, I think the 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 physical consequences aren't as dire as getting punched in the head. And I, I think it's hard to kind of just go in and, you know, go in and have a, a gentle spar, so to, so to speak. I think with striking, I think any time I've done that before, it generally tends to amp up and I, you get a bit of kind of monkey mind. Whereas in jiu-jitsu, I think you can do that a bit more. It lends itself to it. Um, that's just my experience anyway. So, But I do get you. I, like I, I go through phases as well where I'm like, oh, I couldn't be fucked for a few weeks. <laughs> so it is hard to keep motivation, yeah. It is, I would say that Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu is a much better combat sport to grow older with than, than striking. Yeah. Because like you said, I mean, the tendency for, for uh, gentle spars to gradually just the uh, intensity to increase, it's, it's just always, it's really hard to overcome. Yeah. Because with the Jiu-Jitsu, it's not the case. So I'm trying to find the motivation to get back to Jiu-Jitsu, but for some reason I find it hard. I wish I'll get to it at some point. Yeah. My, well, uh, yeah, you know, I think you can, the good thing about Jiu-Jitsu is you can start at any time, you know? So my wife only started at 46 and, and she's obsessed with it now and she's a really good blue belt and she's constantly like, you know, into it. And I think your partner is the same or your wife yeah, yeah. is the same. And I think, um, you know, I've seen people get into it in their fifties as well. And like you say, you can kind of grow older if you manage it within the realms of uh, yeah. normality. Some people do go crazy as well and blow out their knees and neck and all sorts. So, yeah. so you train uh, regularly still with the uh, jiu-jitsu? Yeah, so I, I, as many listeners probably would have heard before, I, I was off for nearly a year and a half. I had my neck fused, similar to your friend Baz Rutten. I had that fused about 13 months ago. So I had a titanium articulating disc put into a neck in a steel cage as well from years of abuse. So I was out for a while with that, obviously, and then it took me a while to get the strength back because I had the very same as your, your friend again, Bas. I had the kind of the baby arm going on one side. I had atrophy and no power, couldn't do a push-up and was like really visibly losing my pec on this side. So on my left, um, but that seems to have come back. I got the all clear to go back to grappling at the end of last year. 
but put a few rules in place, you know, on advice of the surgeon, you know, not to be grappling with people, you know, sort of more than 20 kilos, definitely anyway. So anybody, I'm currently sitting just below 80. So anybody over 100 kilos, I'm very wary of and probably don't roll with them. Um, don't do a lot of stand-up stuff like like takedowns and have stopped doing any sort of, you know, general kickboxing or MMA training, anything we're getting struck to the head. It's, it's all sort of outs on 43 this year, so... Definitely trying to think about longevity and not about, you know, being a tough guy. Just thinking about keeping myself in shape and keeping mobility. So lots of yoga, jujitsu, uh, strength and conditioning probably once a week in traditional term, terms of, but it's more like hit hit sessions using plates, kettlebells and so on. Lots of yoga, uh, swimming and jujitsu. So yeah, just trying to keep moving, you know, keep loose. Yeah. So yeah. I do have a few questions though, if you're Israel on, uh, on your journey to your fighting career before we get into your academic career. So these can be very quick ones. Baz Rutten is a very crazy character. Is he really as crazy as that in real life? Is he that kind of amped up and lunatic the whole time? Well, to be fair, I, I, I can't provide an answer to that, but you got to keep in mind that we're talking, uh, uh, what is it, approaching 15, 20 years ago that yeah. I met him, right? So things have changed, I'm sure, since then. But um I never actually got the chance to give Bot the, uh, Boss the credit that he deserves for, for treating me the way he did. And sometimes I think about it and I was like, wow, what he did for me is crazy. Mm. So some random guy emails him and he gets back to me and started going back and forth and sends me all his videos for free and then invites me over to go and train with him. And, and he didn't even brag about it or, you know, he could have gotten a lot of credit for that, for helping yeah. some Isra random Israeli guy to, yeah. to achieve his career goals and he did that all under the radar and he really went out of his way to help me so sometimes i think about it and i want to reach out and thank him for that but he's such a big time celebrity nowadays it's probably going to be hard for me to get in touch with him yeah yeah but uh he was crazy and full of positive energies and they i was i was really young back then it's very hard for me to handle that type of energies i didn't know how to but they would they would uh him and he had his friend Amir and also Dwayne. I was able to. Oh, Dwayne Ludwig. Yeah. Yeah, Dwayne actually cornered me in one of my. Uh, I think it was my first professional MMA fight. Bus couldn't couldn't make it, so I was there with Dwayne. And it, it was such a such a fun time training with him. Bus was always ahead of the of the curve. He always had interest in uh, ways to train, and he was always trying to develop new strategies. I remember back then he had this audio tape that you'd put in, and we always worked according to that tape and. It was him recording himself, just throwing out random numbers. So three, two, oh, one, yeah, yeah. and each of those, like according to the number you'd hear, you'd have to throw as many punches and, and kicks. Yeah, yeah. You just kind of get a workout like that. And back then, nobody thought about doing things of that nature. So it, it was really a fun time hanging out with him. I'm got positive memories. Yeah, I look. I I really like Baz Rutten's energy on podcasts or when he does karate combat or on TV. I just I just find him like kind of infectious, and um, I have actually referenced Baz Rutten sometimes when I have been uh, supervising PhD students of the last few years. Um, and it was a it was something he said on Joe Rogan's podcast. He said, you know, about doing he was talking about doing the basics right in combat sports, you know, and and sort of getting those fundamentals right. And he was uh, at his gym, I think it was in California, maybe the same place. One of the guys that was coming every week was saying, hey, Baz, how come every week, you know, we keep doing the same thing? We do this, you know, sort of left jab, right cross, left upper hook, right cross, everything, you know, whatever it was. And he goes, because you can't, you know, because you're still not doing it right. That's why, you know, why can't we do something else? And he was kind of, you know, you keep doing it wrong. 
And so sometimes when I'm dealing with PhD students and they keep going, why do you keep picking me up on that same issue? I go, like Baz Rutan says, because you keep doing it wrong. They're like, who's Baz Rutan? I'm like, Google it. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I think Baz is, is, is good in that respect about getting those fundamentals in. And every time I hear him or listen to him, he's always got some good fundamentals and of, or nuggets of knowledge. Another character there you mentioned as well that was on The Ultimate Fighter was Mac Danzig. He was a very polarizing character on The, on the Ultimate Fighter, but he seems like a very accomplished, mar- well, no, he seems he is a very accomplished martial artist, fought in Pride, UFC, and so on. What was it like to train with a character like him? Because he seems very different. Well, not only train with him, I was his roommate for, for a long time. Oh. We shared an apartment for, I don't know, maybe over a year, I think. So, Mac was, was, again, back then, right? He was so intense about his training. I don't think I've ever met anyone who was, who was that dedicated to everything that he's done. His nutrition and Again, I have vague memories of the, of these, of, uh, the past, but a long time ago. But I remember how precise he was about his nutrition. I don't think it was as evolved back then as it is now, but he was, he was really watching everything he ate, and he was so serious about his training and his sleep, too. I, I just have such memories of him, how dedicated he was. So he's, he's a great guy. He is, I remember him to be of strong opinions. But um, he's a very intelligent guy. I remember thinking, I mean, he was, he was, uh, he was a good guy to, to be around. Training so hard. And, yeah, and at some point, I mean, he, made, he broke through, right? He made it to the UFC and made a name for himself. Mm. I, I was training with him right before that period. I think he was just on his way up. So it was, it was great. Yeah, I think he was in the Ultimate Fighter season six. I might have said season five, but I think it was season six he was in that he won. So, yeah. Interesting. So Israel, that's, that's really interesting because um, that, that is a very strong background in martial arts amongst like, you know, some very top level competitors. And, you know, you, you, you got to see these top level guys train, you got to see what was good, what was bad. And, and then you sort of progressed into your PhD. And that's where I met you at, at the Australian Institute of Sport alongside Reed Reel. And, you know, we three of us kind of, you know, often hung out and spoke because we were probably some of the older people around and, um, and obviously the three of us have combat sports experience as well, which I find actually in combat sports is interesting. A lot of the researchers actually have combat sport experience where in other areas, people may not necessarily have that experience, but in combat sports, 90% of people actually have some experience. So, which is quite interesting. That seems to be the case. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, there was a few that obviously didn't, but most did. Um, but that was fun too. I remember uh, the, our old friend, David Martin, Dave, Dave was like one day um, we were on the mats and uh, Lachlan Giles was there at a judo camp. I was there. I was a blue belt. Reed Reel was there. He was a brown belt. And Dave goes, I'll put on a gi. <laughs> I'll roll with yeah, you. Do you remember that there? Yeah, I actually remember that. <laughs> and Reed goes, you ain't going to fucking talk your way out of this one, Dave Martin. <laughs> <laughs> and he got Dave and he choked him about four or five times. And I arm barred him and choked him. <laughs> But he kept coming, he kept coming back. He got like, and Dave was probably, I don't know. Oh yeah, Dave, Dave. Yeah, he kept fighting. He, he wasn't giving up. It, it's an interesting insight into his character. But um, yeah, yeah so funny. Reed having a triangle choke and was just like arm at the same time and just like, come on, Dave, say something now. Talk your way out of this one. <laughs> it's pretty funny. <laughs> probably more funnier for us. Uh, Dave was the head of the combat sports center and you know, it was kind of coordinating all our research. So it's always good one, good to get one back on the bus. So Israel, um, your PhD at um, the Australian Institute of Sport, can you give us a bit of an overview of what you were doing there? Because it was quite different than what myself and Reid were doing. 
Yeah, I was, um, so if uh, tying it back to my background and traveling around the world and having trained in different gyms and work with many athletes, I've noticed that there's just so many different ways to train and, and so many ways to structure a training session. And I was always interested in that. And most specifically, I was also interested in the type of feedback, how different type of instructions or, uh, or feedback, how that influences performance or motor learning and things of that nature. So that's what I ended up doing my PhD. That was a topic of my PhD, um, investigating how augmented feedback, how different types of external feedback influences various outcome, mostly related to combat sport, but not just. I also looked at uh, different strength and conditioning exercises as well. All right. And so you didn't, did, did, did you test the hypothesis in, in between rounds of when a coach or a trainer says, you got to go, you got to knock them out, you got to do something. Is it, was that actually, did that come out as being the number one objective? Well, to be fair, <laughs> I actually did a study of that nature. And I, I remember that was uh, one of uh, David Martin's idea. He was the one that pushed me to do this study, which we actually ended up publishing. But we did actually, I think that was at the Nationals, you know, the, um, the Boxing Nationals. I forgot what year it was, but I actually flew down to Perth. I don't know. I think well, I met you back then. If you yeah, we, we went out for, uh, for breakfast, I think, yeah. Yeah, so I just flew out there with, with two uh, microphones, recorders, and I just approached all the, the boxing coaches right before their athlete was about to compete. And that was probably the most important competition of the year because whoever qualified could have made it to the Olympics. Yeah. That was uh, that's crazy important. And I was just so scared because I thought to myself, who in his right mind would agree right before their athlete is about to compete, I would approach the coach and ask him if they would mind that I would hook a microphone to their shirt and record everything they, they uh, say to their athletes between the rounds. And I, I thought, I thought, I remember talking to David Martin about this and I was like, who's going to agree to something like that? But surprisingly, the vast majority of coaches did agree. And I ended up recording a whole lot of feedback statements that were delivered by the coaches to the athletes between the rounds. And I ended up having hundreds of feedback statements that I analyzed. And, uh, and we, we did some sort of a qualitative analysis, uh, theme analysis, it's called. And we looked at what type of, first, how many feedback statements were provided on average between the rounds. And that was a lot. And then what type of feedback, were they positive or negative? Were they external or internal? Were they uh, those that encourage autonomy? So kind of uh, providing the athlete with the choice as to what to do in the next round or were they constrained in a sense that they didn't give the athlete a choice as to what they should do. They just kind of dictated the next steps. And we analyzed that and that was a really interesting study. Of course, it's really difficult to, to, to draw any plausible conclusions so we can't state that because the athlete was provided with such and such feedback, he or she lost or won the fight, but it was an interesting first, I don't know if any other study has been done on that, on the, uh, of this nature. And I think there's room to do a few more of these because it's really interesting. What, what was some of the most for you, not, not scientifically or in like any P values on them or, you know, what was the most interesting feedback you, you maybe have, you saw as you sifted through that information? Well, first I can, I, this, I remember it's been years since I've, I've done this study, but without a shadow of doubt, the most commonly 
provided feedback, or if you want to call it feedback, is the coaches are saying, fuck. That was re- repeated many times over. So that in terms of frequently, that was the most stated term. Um, then following that, we, we analyzed the feedback in a number of ways. We wanted to see uh, how much of it was positive. So good job, you're doing great, for example, versus negative. You're not doing good, you should do better, or you're not listening. And yeah, we, we, we had pie charts of all of this type of feedback, but we grouped it into, again, positive and negative, internal and external. So just a quick overview of what that is, if the listeners are not aware. So external feedback would be me di- as a coach directing your attention, the athlete, towards something that is external to yourself or something that is internal to yourself. So as an example, focus on punching the athlete's head, your opponent's head. Well, the, the opponent's head is not part of you. It's external to you. So that would be defined as an external feedback versus focus on twisting your hip when you punch. Well, the hip is yours, that's hey. part of you. So that would be defined as internal focus of attention instructions. And there's a lot of research comparing internal and external uh, instructions. And we just wanted to quantify the, the degree of w- which of the two coaches uses. For the most part, we know that external instructions lead to superior performance. The people tend to, uh, athletes, for example, they punch harder and faster when provided external instructions. That's actually a study that was part of my PhD compared to internal instructions, right? But yet most coaches do still use internal instructions uh, between the bouts, maybe just because they're unaware of the effects that words and feedback have on performance. And that the effects of instructions as a whole there or, or feedback, it's, it's, it's real, I think. It's, it's not, the effects add up to be something meaningful that could, ha- could have a decisive effect on the outcome. Of course, there's endless amount of factors at play, but the type of instructions and the way it's delivered, I think is critical. And when I was cornering fighters myself, I was was very careful of the amount of feedback I provided, the type of feedback I provided, the frequency. So things of that nature is something that I believe could provide an edge if the coaches couldn't take like, I don't know, even a one-day seminar to, to be aware of these things because I just think that most aren't that could lead to a competitive advantage, if you wish. At least in the striking sports. I mean, I've never, I remember talking to Reed about this. And at Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, things may be a bit different. I'm not sure how they operate because the pace could be a bit slower. You get more time to actually uh, do things. So I'm not sure how well it carries over to Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, but I would say it's likely the same, but I'm not sure. Mm. Yeah, it's interesting. I'm not... Just off the top of my head, I'm thinking that in Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, and I, I don't have very much competition experience or coaching, but I'm thinking about what I hear, and lo- a lot of it is on internal stuff. If I use your frames of reference there, it's internal stuff like move your hips, sit out to the right, you know, shift your shift your weight to the right, whatever it might be. It seems to be there's not much kind of like grab his face, you know, break his arm, or doesn't yeah. seem to be very externally focused. But like we said as well, it's a bit. The thing is this too, that sometimes coming up with external instructions is not always easy. It's not always easy. It's not always intuitive. It's a lot easier for us, for everyone to come up with internal instructions. Mm. And also there's, I mean, I always try to avoid the false dichotomy that it's one or the other. And 
you know, it's not that anything horrible would happen if you use one type of instruction compared to the other. It could even have benefits under some circumstances. But it is saying that it is difficult to come with external instructions. So it's something that requires thought. It's yeah. not something that you just randomly generate on the spot. You got to come up with these instructions. You got to think about them a little bit. It's not actually a bad thing to do. This is a, an interesting area, Israel, because it's not really, sp- it's not, to my knowledge, it's not really spoken about or discussed in combat sports. When you kind of encounter this and you're looking at your PhD and augmented feedback, what was the kind of the precedent? What was the what was the kind of the research before you, if any? Was there anything there that you could you could leverage off or learn from to start this? Well, I, I borrowed, so to speak, a lot of my ideas from the motor learning domain, which I think is, is very developed in terms of theory. But sometimes the way they implemented the, the theory, the way they tested their hypothesis, the effects of different types of feedback and instructions and so forth, a lot of it used modalities that are not really relevant or you could question whether they generalize the combat sports such as throwing beanbags and and very uh, very uh, isolated tasks motor tasks that you can wonder whether they, they're that would hold true for a punch or for a jump or things of that nature and then also they motor learning naturally looks at learning whereas a lot of the things that i looked to was just acute immediate performance so investigating the effects of different types of feedback on punching performance, that's something that happens immediately. It's not, uh, that we're not talking about the learning aspect of it, which usually is defined as a delay component, something that you measure over time in different ways. So I just borrowed a lot of the existing concepts from the motor learning. And, and as I said before, I'm not sure that that would have been able to generalize their results to, um, to combat. And I used just, elite athletes and using modalities such as punching forces, force production tasks and things of that nature and just further concepts and use different modalities to test them with. Yeah, yeah. I think that has been of some value to the field, assuming that could be leveraged on. And how would you define or with your PhD thesis, what, what's the definition of augmented feedback? How would you describe that? Well, augmented feedback is any type of feedback that you as the trainee or as the athlete, you're not going to be able to get access to on your own. So for example, unless I externally provide you uh, the the punching forces that that you're able to uh, produce in a punch, you're just not going to have access to that. So that's augmented in the sense that it's not something that you can have access to otherwise. So it could be me as a coach delivering you feedback. It could be a machine delivering a piece mm. of technology delivering you feedback about the impact forces or velocities, but it's not something that otherwise you'd have access to. We've seen um, uh, a fighter recently in the UFC um, uh, have a no corner. Um, God, what's his name? Guy with all these tattoos on him. That's probably every fighter now. Uh, Mike, Mike something. Um, Oh God! Maybe I, I want to know if it's the same person that you're thinking of as well. Who did you say? Um, the name I, I I forgot, but I think I I have a I may know where you're going with this. So yeah, I, he um, Mike Brown is in my my head, but it's not. Um, I'm gonna have to Google here. This is gonna drive me mad. But anyway, the question is, Israel, this guy has been in the uh, Mike Perry. Um, 
he was a welterweight fighter. Um, he's he's been fighting recently with no corner, no training team. He's had his girlfriend and his corner or a friend. And uh, yeah, I think I'm, I haven't looked at the statistics on whether he's won or lost with no corner. Um, but uh, it's an interesting approach. What's your um, what's your thoughts on on that? Uh, or have you looked at that? And if, if you haven't looked at it, what do you think about having no corner whatsoever? Is it is it beneficial or detrimental? It's, it's hard to say, right? I don't know if there's been a randomized control trial looking into that, but I would say you want to have a corner because a good corner, as I said before, I think it could have, and a lot of athletes would, would agree with that, and you'd hear them state that without the instructions. They, they, you as a fighter, you sometimes you, there's things you can't see in the fight, so you want to have a really well-trained eye external to you from the side that has a perspective that can analyze the ongoing bout in ways that you can't because there's two completely different perspectives. Um, so I would say a good corner makes all the difference. That That's not something that I would uh, think is knowledgeable. And I wouldn't have, I mean, it could very well be that that, that UFC fighter that his girlfriend is trained and has a good eye and, and, and that, that could be the case. But otherwise, I think that's missing out on a, compet- a serious competitive edge I mean, I, I can I can speak on that both as I have strong memories as a fighter, and I remember a uh, few a few specific bouts in which the corner, my corner, provided me with feedback that made all the difference that I never even thought of. Like start using a strategy in the subsequent yeah. rounds that made a huge difference. That I, there's no way I would, I was I would have been able to do that without direct explicit instructions of what to do next. I actually note that I have experiences of the other way as well that the corner i at least to my experience didn't help me and i think affected negatively the bout but as a coach as well i've cornered many athletes and i've cornered many top level fighters and i would like to think that some of the feedback that i provided made it made differences in, in the rounds so i wouldn't say that's something i'd recommend mm, i don't like because a lot of the time you see the ties um that they're um, they're getting bouts international and sometimes they don't fly their corners and they just get almost a semi-random person in their in their corner just they're still experienced right that a lot of the Thai fighters they're, they're compete they've got over 100 bouts they're just so experienced nothing comes yeah. close to that amount of the Thai's experience that they just don't even care they don't even get stressed um, as long as someone speaks ties in their corner they're fine with that but yeah I, be- I believe in this case with Mike Perry his his partner didn't have any um, MMA or combat sports experience. She was just basically putting an ice pack on his shoulder or neck and giving him a drink of water and telling him he was doing good. I think that's that's as far as as far as I know, unless there's something else I don't know. But yeah, the the interesting one is Israel when you watch MMA bouts, um, particularly you can see very different approaches. And I'm interested to see if you found some of this in your own research. So I'll give you an example. Two that come to mind very that are very methodical in a corner. Actually, three people probably come to mind are very methodical, very calm and measured. Are people like Greg Jackson, Trevor Whitman, Varas Sahabi. Three different people that train, I think, of New Mexico, Colorado, and Montreal. Um, and and they're very kind of calm and collective. When a fighter comes into a corner, for example, Greg Jackson will get them to take a few deep breaths you know, really focus, take a drink of water. 
you give them one or two things and then someone else gives them one or two things and it's basically what pertains to that fight so for example with john jones he might give him one or two things about striking you know the wrestling coach might give him one or two things Vrasa Habi seems to be the same trevor whitman seems to be the same a bit like what you said he gives them something positive like that right you know that right head kick is there all day she keeps dropping her shoulder you know, he might say to like Rose Namayuma, she keeps dropping her left shoulder, the head kick is there all day, step to the left and it's there. And he'll give her something just really simple like that. Have you yourself seen any evidence of that in your research um, where that sort of calm, clear clinical feedback is very beneficial in terms of the method of it's delivered? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I'm not, I haven't done any research specifically on that just because it's, it's think about it, it's, it's a hard thing to yeah. study. Yeah, for sure. I'm not, I'm not sure exactly how I'd be able to do something of that nature, but as a whole, I fully agree that that's the, I mean, based on my collective, you know, coaching, fighting and research experience, that, that that's the way to do things, right? You got to keep calm. You got to limit the amount of feedback that you provide mm. because a lot of the times coaches, they, they, naturally want their athletes to succeed so sometimes you see a situation in which a coach just starts bombing the athletes with many feedback statements many instructions and remember this that we as humans we can only remember acutely up to what like seven numbers i think the number is what seven plus minus two that's just numbers so in that boxing study i told you about in which we recorded the coaches i think the average number of feedback statement was approaching seven. Wow. That's a lot. That's a lot. How are you going to remember all that? How are you going to store all that and drop on that and split of a second instance? So that just doesn't make sense, right? And so you, I would say the best way to go on about it is just decide, prioritize what's critical because there's no way the athlete is going to remember too much going into the, you probably want to provide some positive feedback just to motivate the person because they're fatigued and, and tired and maybe in, in confused a little bit not quite sure what's happening right uh some encouraging feedback and maybe one or max two very clear statements about what needs to be done i am also i also think and that's something i started looking into but we never ended up completing the study that you want to state what it is you want the athlete to do rather than what not to do negations yeah yeah so don't do this versus don't do that so when i ask you to do something when i'm explicit with my instruction about what you should do it's very clear cognitively it's less demanding than telling you don't do something or don't do that or especially when you're talking about double negatives so don't let your hands drop versus keep your hands up yeah, it's simple, yeah. So a lot, you still, I mean, I, I find joy and in, in, in interest in listening to, to different types of feedback. Sometimes you get to hear them between bouts and you hear a lot of double, double negatives. And that's just confusing. And we know that under stress, you can actually mix up the sentence and, and, and people would actually understand, like, okay, lower your hands, right? Don't let your hands drop. That's a, the processing uh, stage takes longer. We know that. So, and then also it's so limited in the actionable item here. So when I tell you not to do something, that's instead of what you should be doing, it's, it's shorter, take less time. It's more explicit, more direct. So usually I, I aim for to think about and, 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 and what you should do, rather what you shouldn't do for the most part. 
And then another thing that I'm a believer in is that you should provide your athlete with uh, some uh, freedom as to how to execute the plan. So many times you hear instructions that are overly precise, I find. But at this particular second, what you want to do is kick him right. And versus something that is a bit more vague, giving me a general plan, but not telling me, not, not uh, insisting on the minute details. Because the event is such a, a fight is such a complex event that is ever changing. And to try to be overly precise, you might lose the ability to see an opportunity and leverage off it just because you're waiting for one particular thing to happen before you act upon it. So I think it's, it's important to leave the athlete with some boundaries that they can operate within to execute a given strategy rather than being overly specific. Now, all we've talked about till now is the feedback between the rounds, but a lot of times you hear the feedback being delivered as the fight progresses. Yes. And sometimes you hear things like, kick him now, kick him now, right now, right now. It's like, uh, I don't know about that because for, put aside the fact that the other person can hear that. <laughs> but also by the time the athlete registered what the coach has said, everything has probably changed. They've moved in the ring. Everything has changed. So many, so much has happened since the athlete has registered what the coach so when you tell them to kick him now, by the time I register, it's been, I don't know, a few tens of a seconds or a few seconds, everything has changed. That may not be relevant anymore. So I personally am not a fan of, of instructions that are overly explicit that are done between the rounds. I'd be more encouraging. So I think, uh, good job, that was, that was great. Something along these lines, that's not too instructive during the bout itself i think that the period in which instructions and feedback especially uh, uh feedback that has to do with strategy or tactics that should be limited to what happens between the rounds during the bout i wouldn't provide too much too, too specific details uh, because then the athlete is there and he needs to to get a feel of what is happening it, just like i can see things from the side but the athlete is in the ring or in the cage experiencing the event and how it unfolds and and can see things and feel things that i can't from the corner that's that is really interesting israel because a couple of weeks ago i was watching a ufc bout that was in the um i think the apex center with no crowds and the corner was constantly calling out stuff like constantly because there was no crowds you could hear it very clearly through the tv and i ended up turning it down and i just said to my wife that would give me the fucking shits to no end as a fighter. As a fan, it's driving me mad. If I was a fighter, that would infuriate me. So if that was my coach trying to give me feedback, that would just like completely discombobulate me. I would probably just stop and go, you know what? I'm fucking done. Stop yeah. talking to me. Like I can't even think in here because of what you're doing. However, yeah, yeah. if I could absorb that and I was the opposition, it might be a good strategy because if I was the opposite fighter, it would, it would annoy me as well. But as a fan it was really annoying me to hear those people just, and it was just constant gibberish for five minutes. It wasn't even like every 30 seconds, like you said, oh, good job, you have him. That's it, that's it. You're forcing him into the corner. Nothing even like that. It was just 
it was just like this monologue of bullshit for five minutes. That was, oh, it was completely crazy to listen to. Yeah, yeah, I hear you. And uh, many times you see coaches, they want to they wanna feel that they're a part of what's happening. So they think they need to, to speak up and, and feel that if they yell louder and if, or if they provide more instructions or more feedback, that the fact that it's more is better, but that is not the case. Sometimes, and you see that with the, with the, like you said, some of the high caliber coaches that you've mentioned, if they never yell that loud and you wouldn't hear them I mean, they're, they're thoughtful about what it is that they say and they're calm. And I think they just get it. Maybe they haven't read the research, but they get it. Yeah, that's, that's me when I was coaching, that's always what I aim for. To be very calculated with what I say, to limit what I say so it'll actually count. Because if I bombard the athlete with feedback, then what exactly is it gonna, what's she gonna act on? There's just so much feedback. And then she also needs to, uh, to do that in real time thinking about what it is that she or he sees during the fight, but also thinking about what it is that I'm saying at the same time. How does that work cognitively? You know, it's just not possible. It's not functional. It's not the way to do things, I believe. So Israel, with some of your work as well, we've, we've spoken about in between rounds or during a fight. What about in general training? How transferable are these lessons to general training in a fight camp or just even for a person who is coaching? Yeah, that's, that's a good question. I mean, Definitely, if, if you want to start implementing some of these strategies, you must start tra- implementing them in practice. You don't want to start doing these things just in the fights. Yeah. So that's something that should, should just like anything else, you know, I'm not going to ask an athlete to do a kick or a spinning kick that he's never practiced just because it's in the fight. Thing goes with uh, these types of feedback and instructions and, and everything else. And many times what I think these days is a good approach is to actually discuss with the athlete I mean, I can come up with a number of feedback statements or instructions and always try to make them as short as possible, right? The goal, of course, with feedback and instructions is to to say a lot with little. So maybe come up with a cue, a specific cue that you'd say once and that would just trigger a full response. It's like, okay, I should use my hands more or something along these lines. And that's something that a good idea is to discuss that with the athlete, explore with the athlete and see what the athlete responds as well to and what makes good sense to the particular athlete or athletes you're working with because i think it's not consistent across everyone some respond very well to some type of feedback and not others i mean my work is been in your work i suppose most of the studies that we do is based on averages and standard deviations yeah. at the group level but there's always deviations there's always um variations so it's at the individual level, if you're lucky enough to be able to work with athletes, then it's worth exploring together and trying to figure out which type of feedbacks work best for each athlete. They're not necessarily one of the same, although there are some principles that could guide, like, for example, not saying too much, being more on the positive side of things, using more external instructions, providing a sense of autonomy or providing some sense of choice. I think that's critical in the success of athletes to... Uh, let them grow as athletes and learn how to make their own decisions rather than the coach kind of dictating everything. Interestingly enough, I remember talking to Reed not that long ago. He's now in China and one of the head coaches there at the UFC. And we're thinking about doing a study to explore some of these uh, aspects with uh, 
with the Chinese fighters because they come from a very different culture. It's not clear that they would necessarily respond the same way, right? The cultural differences could actually lead to similar results. Mm. So that's something I'd love to look into. For example, the choice aspect, I mean, they might not respond as well to that as, as, a, as an American fighter, for example. And that's something worth, worth looking into. Yeah, that would, that would be interesting, actually, culturally. Like, you know, are, are, do some cultures just want to be kind of, well, the, independent of the individual person, but do some cultures like to be just kind of riled up? Like, I don't know, like do, I was going to say Irish fighters, but then again, if you like, do they like to just go in and brawl? But then if you look at John Kavanagh, he's actually polar opposite than Conor McGregor in terms of his feedback. He's very measured as well. So it's not really... Um, it's hard to tease that one apart. That, that's an interesting one actually to ponder and think about, about the cultural differences. And I suppose you'd have to know lots of different languages to be able to investigate that. There's all those ones. Because like you said, Chinese, Japanese fighters might be very much, it might be just very instruction-based from the corner, like do this, do this, do this, and yeah. that's it. Whereas more, we'll say, Western-based fighters might have lots of um, lots of choice. And then again, all those individual differences and cultural differences, and then the temperament of the fighter. What, you know, is the fighter more cerebral and likes that kind of cognitive engagement or are they just someone that wants to go in and, you know, like, you know, those fighters that try to create this burning platform. You hear them in like the, the countdown shows or the hype up. No one's taking food out of my kid's mouth. It's like, man, the, the dude wasn't in your house touching your kid or taking food off the table. Like, but they have to create this story, this narrative, this, this nearly like hero's journey, you know, to look, look at Joseph Campbell's work that they have to kind of go and fight for a quest. Whereas other people are in it for, for different reasons. Like GSP was in it like for an athlete. I think Andy Galpin talks about this, these kind of archetypes, you know, the, the athlete, the fighter, the martial artist. Nate Diaz is kind of fire that takes it like, it's like a personal attack on him every time, you know? GSP is like, it's a competition. So it's all these different types of, it's like, it's fascinating. Once you start breaking it out and thinking about it a bit more, even just now, there's so many variables, you know, to come up with the one answer, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. That's why at most we got some tentative general principles that can guide us, but they may not at all be relevant to the individual fighter. As you said, there's just so many differences. So you, you can come with a prior, you know, like based on the group level research that we've done, we found that this type of whatever intervention or feedback or instructions tends to lead to superior performance and that it might not work with this particular athlete. So you always got to keep an open mind and explore and see at the, the coach level right mm -hmm. it should be it should be driven by by studies but they should not be the studies should not dictate what the person should be doing one, one of the things there is really said about was given the the fighter or the athlete the autonomy and something that i actually have a bit of a gripe with in jiu-jitsu is that a lot of coaches and not that i'm an awesome coach or that i coach but it's something i often think about even as a student in a class or just watching it from the side some coaches give athletes, particularly at the white belt and blue belt, so this kind of beginner intermediate level, too many options. Like, you know, you can you can push on the hip, you can drag the arm across, set up the arm bar, but if they push here, you can switch to a triangle. Then to scale from that, you can go from the arm palata, but then to get out of that, you can roll across into side control, then step over into the mount, mount the triangle, and then have to do this, you can do that. And it's like, fuck, you talk about seven things, like 10 different variations. And you can see the white belt standing there going, What's going on? And then when you roll with them in the class afterwards, they're just spinning around in the spot, trying to do 15 things at once. And they haven't even done one thing correctly. So where do you kind of um, recommend to find that balance between instruction 
and autonomy in terms of like getting the right principles like where can you transfer over into autonomy do you wait more till the fighter or the athlete is more skilled to use a jiu-jitsu thing like up around the brown or black belt level it, the, does the person have to have a certain level of fights like where do you cross over to give that athlete the autonomy yeah well, that's a good question and i don't think there's a from a research perspective we don't have any clear answers my approach is that that as the athlete, as I gain experience working with the athletes and I get to know them, I'll I'll get a feel for whether they respond well to more or less. And when I say more or less, of course, it's just relative to the athlete. More or less autonomy, that's part one. Because some respond really well to that; they enjoy it and they thrive off it. Some feel a bit more intimidated by that, and they would like me to make a decision, and that's their decision. In a sense, it's still part of the their choices. But it, otherwise, I would say that as the athlete progresses. As they, as they improve in whichever sport they're doing, then that would, I would I'd provide more and more autonomy as the athletes progress more and more until that, until they're at a very high level, in which case I'll try to, it just, the two of us more so head to head trying to think about how to solve a problem. And then it's, uh, I'll still be a coach providing some instructions, but I'll provide a whole lot more of possibilities of choice possibilities to the athlete because I would say that depriving the athletes of making training-related choices at all levels would be a mistake because I can never be in the athlete's shoes. I don't know exactly what their experience, what they're thinking. So why not leverage off that useful channel of information and allow the athlete to assist me in making the decision-making process? I don't understand how coaches deprive that of, of athletes, and you see that happening all the time. That Some athletes that I've worked with they're just so unaccustomed to the idea of having a say about anything. They're just, they're following instructions. And I think that's unhealthy and unproductive in many ways. First, I think the athletes should be involved, especially if they, especially in combat sports, the athletes should have a say about some of the things that are happening. They're risking their, their own uh, selves in the ring, but then also why not develop the, the sense of, of being in tune with what is happening, developing that ability and providing me with that feedback if I'm listening, no, I'm not sure about this. I don't, doesn't feel, doesn't feel like it's going to work. Maybe can we try the other side? It's like, mm. oh, wow, you know, that's, that's a good idea. Let's try that. But you got to encourage the athlete to, to dig in and look into and explore these possibilities and try them and, and develop the confidence to share that with the coach, the coach, that the coach doesn't feel threatened by the fact that the athlete is, suge is suggesting trying things differently. You got to foster that type of relationship and, the coach should act to be very confident because they shouldn't feel threatened by that athlete or athletes suggesting doing things otherwise. So more like a kind of a shared responsibility model where they come together to work out what's best for, for, for the athlete. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly right. Israel, you've had the, the great privilege of being around combat sports for many years. And like you said, at the start training with many, you know, um, gifted athletes and very dedicated athletes. Um, if we were to watch combat sports today, who would you say would be some of the good people to watch in terms of feedback or instructionals? Not because of the technical aspect, but because of in how they approach, you know, the athlete or, you know, even instructional DVDs. Like for me, it comes to mind for me personally, someone who resonates with me, that's probably the best instructor online is Lachlan Giles because he, he espouses a lot of principles that you talk about. Things very simple, focusing on positive things, not too many words, nice and simple, clear instructions, and, and you can remember them. Um, so, you know, Lachlan's very good at that. Um, who, who would you see out there that would be good in terms of corner men or 
corner people, whatever, um, or coaches out there that, that kind of espouse these things? That's a good question. I fear that I, I, I don't have, a, I mean, other than the names that you provided as coaches, I think what should, I mean, instead of a name, I think just looking for principles, that uh, a good basic test is, is just to see the amount of feedback, the, how calm the person is, how clear are their instructions, how many instructions. I think that we've talked about throughout is, is uh, they're relatively easy to grasp. And once you develop an eye or an ear for that, that's something that you can, you can try to get a feel for. And I think maybe the listeners after they're done listening to our episode and if they're interested in MMA, they're probably listen to uh, what the corner has to say with with a different perspective and, and maybe that's worth something yeah, well, yeah I, I can't think right now of a particular person that i can recommend that there's just so many yeah uh, i think after this conversation i'll be uh, i'll be definitely you know tuned into the corner a bit more myself israel how do you um how do you think these findings may be transferable to other sports the example that hits me straight away is this year i've been working in Formula One with the McLaren team and I've been working with the, the pit crew and engineers around sleep, travel and jet like so we've been doing lots of planning for those but a few years ago I worked with Daniel Ricciardo who at the time was driving for Renault and now he's driving for McLaren but I'm, I've become a, a fan of F1 over the last three years you know working in the sport and I actually really enjoy it and so when you're watching a race uh, or in practice or in the qualifying you hear a lot of feedback coming through from their actual race engineer and it's really interesting to see a lot of this feedback. Now, we're obviously only privy to what gets aired, you know, via the, the sports channel or whatever app you're watching it through. So maybe there's more stuff going on that we don't even know. But it's very interesting to, to hear the feedback and um, the different interactions back and forth. Um, you know, all the drivers speak perfect English. So it's, it's, you know, and everything seems to be in English, all the teams, regardless of where they originate, whether it be Italy or France or England or whatever. But it's really interesting to see it back and forth. And it's also interesting to see new drivers to the sport, how they interact versus a driver who's been in it for 20 years, like Kimi Raikkonen. You know, like Kimi Raikkonen will basically not even answer his engineer sometimes. <laughs> He'll just keep driving. Whereas a new guy will be like, yeah, okay, I'm trying. What about this? What about that? And so it's really interesting to see the difference. How do you think, um, or have you ever thought about how these principles may apply to other sports? Well, first, the example with the formula driving is fascinating. Honestly, I've never thought about this before, but this this would be a, a fascinating topic to investigate because, yeah, I mean, the effects of feedback can probably investigate it, if nothing else, at least in a, in a simulation if they exist. And, and that's something that I can envision being something that can be studied and could provide an edge if done properly, right? So that's, oh, yeah. I'm not sure if there's any research done on that, but that, that's, that's a fascinating no. idea. We should talk afterwards. There is an International Council of Motorsport Sciences, which I have just joined this year. Um, and we should we should talk after this podcast. We don't put a note down because as I'm talking, as you're saying there, I just thought, I wonder, is there an ability to download transcripts and even go through retrospective races to see about positions and feedback and the number of times and the number of interactions even. So you could do like number of interactions with a driver then start breaking out with your framework as well from combat sports to see what happens. Because yeah, I, yeah. I, I heard on a, like on a, on a race for Lando Norris, he was racing and they kept giving him feedback of obviously what we could hear. And he just basically said, stop talking to me, let me race. Like you're giving me 
and you could tell it was way too much information. I had just said a few minutes before that, Jesus Christ, they're annoying him on the radio. Like they're just constantly at him. And he just said, shut up and let me race. And he did. And he finished and he got hurt on the, and he was on the podium, you know, and that was a great, great result from McLaren. So it's interesting to know, like you say, the amount of feedback, when to give the feedback and is it positive or negative or when, knowing when to like, just shut the fuck up and let people do their job as well. Yeah. Yeah. That's an art, isn't it? Just mm. to shut up. I Which I struggle with. Many coaches have benefited from that. So w- with, with Formula One, man, that's fascinating. I honestly just, I, I, I don't know. But with other sports, I mean, I've looked into these things with uh, strength and conditioning. So force brother, so counter movement jump, uh, you know, bench presses, isometric deadlifts, things of that nature. And the effects are mostly there. They're consistent as, as you would expect, right? I mean, boxing as well, like punching harder than you'd expect that people would also produce more force and, and, and resistance training tasks. So there's been more research on SNC. Mm. on strength and conditioning with the type of uh, this type of research, the effect of different feedback and instructions and so forth. And the effects seem to be consistent. Now, how they would carry over to other sports that require other qualities, such as racing, that, that's a good question. So on that, and just... Also, I'm... And, I'm sorry. And then also, as I said before, I never actually got... I mean, I remember discussing this with Reed a bit, how much of this carries over to jiu-jitsu, which has a different pace at times. How would that work over there? We talked a lot about that. I remember that I, I was really interested in that, but we never got a chance to, to look into that. So that, there's still a question mark there, how exactly that would transfer to, to that sport. I'm, I'm unsure, but... Yeah. The... Um... I'm just writing a note there. I'm writing notes about the F1 and some jiu-jitsu. I've got lots of thoughts. This is the problem. I'm trying to I'm trying to ask you questions and then get lots of thoughts coming in on top of the the questions. Um, so we were, you were saying about oh, I completely lost what I was going to say. Now, what was the last thing you said? We said uh, we talked about the jiu-jitsu and, and maybe the SNC stuff. Oh, S and C. That's quite. Oh yeah, that's it. Sorry. Um, let's say you got somebody doing um, you know, the force plate, like the what was it like the the deadlift on the force plate, what do you call that? Is it? Is that correct? Isometric uh, mid-type pull, it's called. Isometric mid-type pull, yes. I remember that at the IS when you were doing some of that with the with the weight cutting study that Reid was running. Um, let's say you do that and an athlete, you know, pulls a number on that, whatever it is, and then you go to them, uh, that wasn't very good, do it again. And then they do it and you don't get them any feedback and they walk away. And then potentially they do it and you go, oh, wow, you're really strong for your size and your age. I bet you can go better. Do they, like When you give feedback like that, do people generally do better? Yeah, they do. They do. Uh, generally, they do. I should know that um, we've, I've done a number of studies. Actually, I've done one at the AIS. That was my final PhD study. And that was a study that was so stressful to me that I remember afterwards I got sick for a whole week. And uh, we had all the, the national team Although I think it was like 16 boxers, that that's what they do full time, right? And they, um, we had them come in a few times to the punching integrator room. If you remember that. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Ice that you'd punch and it would collect punching forces and velocities. And they did this punching protocol. That considered, I think it was like almost a full round, three minutes of full uh of delivering many punches. I forgot the amount, just straight punches and hooks as hard as you possibly can. That was a grueling protocol. And what I've done with all of them is after they ended 
uh, one of the, the protocol, I, I gave them false positive or false negative feedback. I would tell them, I would look at a random a number that wasn't real. And I was like, oh man, your performance is, is, is pretty bad today. You're 10% lower than average. They'll be like, well, what? And then, uh, yeah, of course that wasn't real, right? I just wanted to see how that feedback would influence their subsequent performance. And then I did that on a different day with positive feedback. I was like, man, your punching performance is great today. You're punching 10% higher than average. And, and I did that with everyone. And there was also one condition in which I just given neutral feedback. I was like, oh, you're, you're punching exactly as, as the rest today. So there'd be like negative feedback, neutral yeah. and positive. And with that study, we found that it didn't go any, it didn't have any effect on anything. The performance was consistent. But, and then I can tell you on another study we recently published is uh, I thought to myself, well, a lot of this false positive feedback about the performance is usually based on percent. So we tell them, oh, your performance is, I don't know, five, 10, 15% higher or lower than the norm or compared to the peer group. Most of these false performance feedback is based on that. But I said, all right, let's, let's try something a bit more uh, realistic. So we provide them as like, oh, you're doing great. You're, you're looking, your forces are excellent. So a bit more direct rather than number-based. Or you're looking very weak today. Yeah, or yeah. You're looking, you're not doing well at all. So we use this type of more realistic feedback. And funny enough, that was, that was done on untrained participants. And it was just a fourth production task. If we found that, again, on average, everyone applied greater forces when they received uh, negative feedback. When mm. we were telling them, oh, you're not trying hard enough, you look weak, or things of that nature. They applied greater forces in contrast to when we told them that you're looking great, your forces are excellent. So there's something to be said about that as well. I actually don't have a final conclusion as to how to interpret this, this line of research yet because the results are inconsistent. A lot of the research out there, especially in the motor learning, has shown that pos positive false, uh, so false positive feedback increases learning and sense of, of autonomy and, and self-efficacy and things of that nature. But then one study that I've done with the box, we found no effect. It didn't go either way. And then this recent study that we've done when we use this particular type of feedback actually increase forces. So what, what are, one of the discussion points there is that we also know that negative type of feedback elicits anger. People get frustrated and angry. And maybe that anger led them to apply greater forces. But again, more research is required. I mean, I, I, I'm, I, I left without any clear conclusions as to how I should act upon this. I think we just really need a few more studies to get a better idea of, of how this is unfolding. Yeah, it's fascinating. I, I love this because it's, I'm just thinking about my own personal examples as well in swimming or running or other things as well. And, you know, it's, it's, it, I'm just thinking about times when things were said that's like, I, I did a big swim here before Christmas and in the last kilometer I was puking and the lady on the boat that was supporting me, there was a, there was a boat and her son was paddling for me and she had, she had supported her son and lots of these other swims for she was very experienced. She's actually Canadian and she's about the same age as us. And she was screaming at me going, you know, you ain't going to fucking stop now. We got one kilometer. I will kick your ass if you don't finish. And I was like, I was shouting back out. She does jujitsu as well. And I was shouting back out to her, Kelly, I'm not going to fucking stop. Don't worry. Like, you know, and it was that kind of interesting kind of like, even though I was puking and tired, I was like, I'm, I'm going to do this, you know? So it's interesting when 
the feedback at the right time as well. Where at the start of the day, you know, very early in the morning, it was like everybody's kind of hugging and high-fiving and we got this, we're going to do this. But then towards the very end, it was like, don't you fucking quit. You got, it's right there. It's right there. You could do this. You know, and so it's interesting about the time and the type of feedback as well. And when it's, when it's motivating you, I think if someone was screaming at me at half five in the morning starting it, I'd be like, get on my face. Like, you know, but at the last kilometer, that's what was needed. So it's knowing when to give that as well as is quite good, you know, and when it's used to amp up and push at those times. There's so many variables. Yeah. I love it. Your study there with the, with the striking is interesting in Israel. Cause I actually had a, I had a, an idea to do that from my own PhD based upon um, military stuff. Whereas, as you know, in um, the military, particularly in special forces, they don't give you a lot of feedback. So you don't know whether you're doing very good or very bad. And, you know, generally they'll give you a lot of negative or just call you a bag of shit type of thing and just let you go, particularly on those special forces courses. And I wanted to do something similar with sleep where I wanted to blind people to their sleep every night, as in the values that were reported, which at the time I could do with, with a specific device and then randomize how I would tell people on certain days you know, you had a shit night's sleep, your performance is going to be bad today, you know, and then have, have a look at, you know, RPE and maybe coaches validation on it in, in grappling athletes or, or coaches scores. And then conversely, give them really good feedback, you know, or, they, or, or like what you said, you had a really bad night's sleep last night. You know, you've been sleeping bad. You need to really get your shit in order now and push today because the coaches are watching you and just give them all that different, have all these different kind of, um, response variables and see what the effect is on it because a lot of people freak out about the sleep the night before an event yeah, yeah. you know which is really actually not that detrimental it's more about your long-term sleep so like a lot of them um, where events start very early in the morning like iron man or ultra running at like four or five o'clock in the morning people kind of freak out oh and you slept an hour last night i think that's going to kill them when really it doesn't it's like if you've been sleeping well for the last two or three weeks and focus on good sleep it's it's fine so you can kind of overcome that. Really important. I mean, I'm yeah. glad you said that because I, I I had that experience a lot, and that that's a message that should circulate more often. I think people don't get that, and that's good to good to know. Yeah, no, it's it's, it's definitely it's definitely the case. Yeah, so focus on long term kind of sleep habits, not just the night before, because conversely as well, people can, you know, have short sleep. And then go, oh, well, I've got a game on Saturday, so I'll go to bed really early on Friday night and think that one night makes up for it, and it doesn't. So you got to constantly focus on hitting that zone of seven to nine hours. So, yeah. Israel, fascinating conversation. I like all good scientists, never a clear answer, always more research to be done. This is what we know, but we need to know more and we need more funding and we need more people and we need more questions. And we need more answers. So I love it. It's right down my alley. Israel, if people want to... If people want to get in touch with you, follow your work, what's the best way to get a hold of you? Um, what's the best way to control you? <laughs> best way to control me? I would say the, I've got a website. It's called yep. halperinlab.com. You can probably, I upload all my work there. Yeah. And uh, you can get in touch with me through there. Just email. I mean, I got a Twitter account or a Facebook account. I don't know how active I am, but one of, one of those pathways is probably the way to do so. No worries. We will put the links to your website in the show notes. Israel, just hang on a moment while we say goodbye to all our listeners and uh, we will close out this conversation. Um, so yeah, thank you, Israel. Really appreciate it. Um, so as Israel said, um, you can head over to his website, follow him on Twitter. We'll put those links in the show notes. Head over to sleepforperformance.com for all the podcast episodes, show notes, blogs, and other free stuff as well. 
And don't forget, we have the Sleep for Performance Seminar on the 12th of August, 2021. Please go there and register. This seminar is 100% free for anybody who wants to attend. Anybody can attend. It doesn't matter who you are or where you are. We will be featuring 12 um, presentations that will be 10 minutes long with five minutes of Q&A. They will be from early career researchers, honors, masters, PhDs, or people with three years of their PhD. There will be a six, uh, six, I was going to say, I'm putting up the prize money. There will be a $500 prize for first prize, $250 for second, and $100 for third place. It's free for all presenters, free for all attendees. They will be run in three one-hour blocks um, on the 12th of August to account for time zone differences because you have people applying from all over. The uh, uh, abstracts are, um, are open on the website. The registration is open on the website. Follow me on Twitter at Sleep for Perform, over on LinkedIn, and on the website as well. You can sign up for all that stuff. Um, if you do miss them, please still pre-register because you will get access to the videos afterwards. All right, until next time, sleep well.